Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Well Actually, the athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. This is your host, Fernanda Prates, and I've got a little story to tell you today. A few years ago, when I joined MMA Junkie and started tweeting in English, there was this person whom I constantly interacted with. In fact, interact might not be the best word. It was more like I fangirled embarrassingly all over this person. I worshipped their every word. If this person were to tell me to shave my head, sell all my belongings, and join them on a quest for the superior truth in a utopian community that wouldn't call itself a cult, but that was definitely a cult, I would. I'd even sell my Sarah Connor action figure and that black pair of jeans that makes my ass look like heaven. People on Twitter would constantly be like, you two should definitely do a podcast together. And I would have agreed if it wasn't for the fact that back then, I would have preferred to listen to the best of Josh Groban on repeat than subject myself to the creative torment of having a podcast. Yet, here we are. And from the second well actually became a reality, I knew I wanted this person to join me. Every week, I'd be like, not yet. I need to get a little less awful at this because this has to be good. I have to not suck. I can't botch this like I do with everything in my life, including romantic relationships and that one time I tried to learn how to play tennis. A few months later, here we are. And I do not think I have become any less awful at this, but what I have done is I've run out of fucks to give. So I asked my inadvertent cult leader to join me. And she said yes. Julie Kedzi said yes, yay! I really don't think I need to tell you who Julie is, but podcast etiquette tells me I should go over how she's a former MMA fighter, a damn fun one at that, a former Invicta FC matchmaker and current commentator, and a writer. She's also a master at Twitter takedowns and actually a literal master, as in somebody who has an MFA in writing by the University of Iowa. And I'd argue after her riveting live tweeting of the Iowa caucus that she might also have a bright future as a political pundit. Today, though, Julie is doing her many qualifications, no favors, by being in my podcast. Again, I have no idea why these amazing people keep agreeing to talk to me, but what can I say? Sometimes good things happen to good people, and sometimes they happen to me. Let's all just calm down, embrace this, and not ruin the moment by overthinking it, like I do with everything in my life, including romantic relationships, and that one time I tried to learn how to play tennis. Here's Julie Kedzie. I'm just going to preface this by saying that my guest has not heard my intro yet, so I must warn her, uh, it is a little creepy, and she might reconsider this decision after the episode is live, but by then it will be too late, so tough tits. Also, hi, welcome to the podcast, Julie. Hi, thank you so much, and you know what, tough tits is perfect. perfect. <laughs> I've been using it a lot, I think it just, yeah, it's very... Um, wide encompassing you could say yeah. for many a wide range of situations um i hope you've recovered from your experience with the iowa caucus on monday <laughs> i gotta say i do not know what a caucus is and what it does and i actively chose not to google it just because i felt like i was having a better experience just by living <laughs> it through you so well, i wasn't yeah. disappointed <laughs> no it's like it's one of those things that like I felt, oh my God, I'm living in Iowa now. I really should participate this as it has been a tradition in, in so many elections. But at the same time, I don't know when I'm doing something, I have to like, I always feel like I need to qualify the fact that I realize that 
90% of Iowa is white. And there, this is not representative of the entire United States. It's like, it's supposed, I think they do the caucuses here first to kind of get a feel for the quote unquote heartland. But it's like, Iowa, I think is the last remaining state in the union not to allow uh, people with, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but with convictions to be able to vote. Uh, you know, it's just, I don't know, it's just, well, with, not with convictions in the sense of having beliefs, but I mean. No, I under, I, <laughs> I get what you're saying. Uh, but, you know, and so it's, just, it's one of those things is like, basically you're getting what a bunch of the old white people in Iowa think. Um, and that's, I don't know, I hope that's not representative of the entire American vote. Uh, but I was caucusing on, you know, sorry to all the conservative listeners, but I was definitely caucusing on the Democratic side, and I'm uh, very, very happy with the top two results, if they are Elizabeth Warren and and Bernie Sanders, because those are, to me, two people who I think would do a very fucking good job. So that is uh, You shouldn't really worry about conservative listeners, though. Like, <laughs> this is a podcast about <laughs> feminism and MMA, so, you know, I have a very... <laughs> It's a it's a very niche thing. You're talking to like three people, and I'm pretty sure none of them are conservatives. It's so funny. One time I said something about how I thought Elizabeth Warren was a good leader, and Twitter people were jumping down my throat saying she tried to ban MMA in Massachusetts. And I'm like, well, I, you know, okay, but so did some of your favorite Republicans. Like, there's a, like I, you know. Yeah. Everybody has to come around on things when they're more educated on it. And that's that's kind of how MMA works. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I'm like, I don't think that's actually a reason that would disqualify her for being a very good leader. Um, because if somebody is a good leader and yeah. the, they'll listen to you when you talk about the benefits of this mm-hmm. sport, which maybe sometimes doesn't have benefits for all people involved. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing, right? <laughs> like, not everybody who likes MMA is a good person. I think we must just come to terms with that reality at some point. Uh, <laughs> do you know if you're voting for her or Bernie? Um, you know, Bernie represents the values that I was kind of raised with. My boyfriend mm-hmm. says that I really should be in the 1960s, and I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I should have been in the 1960s. But that's kind of, I just really do have this kind of weird. For all my uh, love of of violence in in the cage, I really do kind of have this, you know, hippie peace and love kind of attitude. Um, But I still think Elizabeth Warren would make, you know, I'm so torn. I'm I'm in his camp. I caucused for him, but I'm so torn because I think she legitimately has structural, like, programs and plans in place that could fix a lot of the problems in this country so mm-hmm. yeah. i don't vote in the u.s because i'm not american so <laughs> i don't have to <laughs> think about that but i don't i do listen to a lot of podcasts uh due to the fact that i have no life um so i have a lot of free time and uh i i, I i'm kind of like with you there like if i had to choose right now uh, i think i'm probably leaning towards bernie but uh mm-hmm. for a while i was thinking like 
Elizabeth Warren, like, she's just so strong with, like, policy. And we've seen that she can be, like, really, you know, hardcore against the bank establishment and things like mm-hmm. that. So, uh, and, it, and it does weigh into me the fact that she's a woman. Like, I mm-hmm. don't think it should, but in the back of my head, it kind of does. So, uh, but like I said, thankfully, this is, like, your problem because I don't have to vote. <laughs> I, I gotta say... <laughs> I gotta say, this is not how I expected this podcast to start, but um, <laughs> we'll probably get night last night, man. I'll tell you, and like my tweets, I wasn't expecting people to be paying any attention because I really do kind of tweet talking to myself and trying to make jokes, and then I was like, oh shit, people are paying attention. Um, I guess I should put some real numbers in there too, but <laughs> yeah. But I think because the caucus was also kind of a clusterfuck, right? Um, you know, in so many ways, yes, but also I think it was, I think it's always that way. I think something Mm -hmm. changed with it. But I mean, you know, where I was, I was at this place called the Angler Theater, which is just this theater downtown. And, um, as much of a clusterfuck, it was an insanely friendly clusterfuck. People Mm, were good. They were helping each other, (laughs) each other's choices. Like, you know, that's kind of, um, I realize that that's a privileged kind of community to be living in, but I really enjoy that. I enjoy when people, like, that's one of the things I enjoy about the Democratic Party, um, not all the Democratic Party at all times, but just, you know, this this desire to help one another, I think, is is very strong. And yeah. I think it's in a pretty nurturing place to want to help the person next to you, or you have to have had a good experience in your life to want to help the person next to you. Because mm-hmm. selfishness usually comes from a place of hurt. So... Um, I mean, but seeing happy people is always nice. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. And friendly, friendly clusterfucks are the best types yeah. of clusterfucks. I mean, that's what I would call Twitter for me a lot <laughs> of the time. So yeah. that's a good thing. <laughs> uh, but my 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 first question for you was actually um, after this great detour that we just took uh which i love um when you're not out there caucusing i don't know if that's a verb but let's just roll with it um i know you got your mfa i know you have a puppy last i checked you were also writing a book so uh basically i just wanted to ask you what you've been up to you know the lazy thing that i should have researched i'm just gonna go ahead and ask what have you been doing I mean, it, it feels like I've been doing nothing, like all, all of Jack's shit. Because <laughs> what happened is after I got my MFA, I applied for a fellowship at the University of Iowa to teach. And it's a year-long fellowship where you're supposed to work on your book. The thing is, I am massively in debt um, with fighting back taxes, student loan payments, all of these things, you know, car payments, just, you know, the day-to-day life of actually being somebody who's, although I'm, again in the white privileged like middle class if that's there but i mean i'm somebody who has had to uh uh, earn a living and also rely on systems in place that are no longer what they were structured to be like student loans and stuff um and so i am like the result of it is is, like I'm, i'm working like three different jobs you know writing the book is becoming extremely slow i have a draft that's not even ready for a book proposal yet. Um, and so I think it's going to take a few years for it to come out. Um, but that's actually, I think, a very good thing because my thesis was, you know, kind of how I was structuring the book. And my thesis, it's not that it's crap. It's just that it could be 
you know, way better. You know, you see your flaws, you see that, that kind of thing. And so it's like, okay, this is where I started. And and every time you approach a subject, your emotions change about that subject. You know, you, you get more patient with something or you get a better perspective on something. And so um, while I'm also teaching MMA and teaching kickboxing here in Iowa, it's teaching me a lot about the perspectives um, that I probably should be listening to. I don't know if that makes any sense, but um, I am not, um, I don't know, actually know how I come across on Twitter. I hope it's delightfully sarcastic and charming, but <laughs> I am. It is like, mostly it is. Uh, could be my I, narcissism because I feel like your Twitter is kind of like my Twitter twin, like a smarter twin. So no. um, I'd like to think that about myself. So maybe it is my narcissism speaking, but I would agree that's how you come across. Well, your finger's on the pulse of actual what actually what's going on in the MMA world. I get shocked and surprised sometimes because it's, it's just so hard for me to keep up with all the new people and all this and also be teaching mm -hmm. classes and all these other things. Some people can balance that all out, but I am one of those hyper-focus on what's exactly in front of you, shut out the rest of the world, and then realize it's two days later, which um, <laughs> <laughs> it can be a little tough. Um, I mean, it, it works for me. It doesn't work for living in civilization, but um, so I don't know. Like, that's overrated, though. <laughs> Like I had to, I, it's hard to explain where, I'm, but ah, uh, I don't know. Um, I think you're much smarter than me, and I think you have a much better grasp on what's going on in the world. And the fact that you're able to make deadlines and produce content is a very impressive thing to me because I can't make a single damn deadline to save my life these days, and that's including grading my students' papers. So. Yeah, that, that I barely make deadlines though. <laughs> like, we, I I need all of them postponed if that makes you feel any better. Every time then like he gets an email from me and he just knows that it is me saying that, you know, it, it was supposed to be Tuesday, but how about Thursday and then how about next week? So don't beat yourself up about that. And also this is my only job. So there's that. <laughs> But I mean, that's incredible, though, like that, that you can make this your profession. Like, I would love to make writing my profession, although I don't know that I could be necessarily a journalist. I would want to be an MMA writer and I would want to do like the more in-depth profile sorts of things um, that I, I love those. And so mm -hmm. the fact that you can do both is to me hella impressive that you can, you know, kind of report on things, but you can also do columns uh, and, and opinion pieces and, and you know, in-depth I love that. Um, that's that's what I would aspire to be. But like, I'll be honest, we may ha have been taught how to pitch things here. We may not have been. I can't, I can't remember a damn thing in the last three years. I, I feel like I've graduated in a fog with no skill sets whatsoever, except, you know, assigning papers to students and then not. But <laughs> it's a consolation. That's how all of us feel, I think. <laughs> Or maybe just me, but like I'm surrounded. Well, you know, you read the athletics. So I'm surrounded by these people and they're like professionals and like put together and like actual adults with like lives. And I'm constantly just like fumbling my way around shit. So I love it that you feel that way about me, but that is just not how I operate. Society here, though, because I think you're great. I think you're 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 just phenomenal. Um, it's so funny. I was just thinking about like I'm teaching a class mm -hmm. about fight writing, and last semester mm -hmm. I taught your piece about Mackenzie Dern. And so, if you ever have a piece that you really like, are super super proud of that, you know, you'd like exhibited to a bunch of undergraduates, let me know because I <laughs> try to use the athletic, 
you know, as, as a basis for showing them some good writing about, about combat sports. But that was, uh, well, thank you. Uh, I'm never super proud of anything I do, so that could be a problem. <laughs> I, I really appreciate it. Uh, but just, uh, that was actually something that I wanted to ask you about the writing, because um, I totally hear what you're saying. And like, I don't really do reporting anymore because I fucking hate it. I never liked it. I did it because I had to. I like writing. Like, that's the one thing that yeah. I do like. Um, yeah. And that was actually what I was going to ask you. Like, right now, when you think about goals or something that, you know, you want to like sort of put your all your time into, you would like to be an MMA focused writer. Like, like that's your thing now. Yeah, I think, well, a combat sports focused writer or even mm -hmm. just in general focused writer. Um, I do find fighting at, at its core just as a general like blanket term to be something incredibly interesting um but also it, it's weird because i teach this class called uh the history of the essay and violence and so when i came to graduate school this is my little embarrassingly late in life woke story but um you know I, when i came you know i had this very coming from where i my background i had this very strict idea about what violence is and and the reason i thought violence was it had to be a physical um, encounter, um, like, you know, physical action. And, and because I thought violence to me has such a momentary, I don't know, it's, it's a momentary thing. It's a slap, it's a hit, it's a gunshot. It's something that inflicts pain immediately, right? Mm -hmm. And I thought that these things, you know, when people are saying, oh, your words are a violence, I would like internally roll my eyes and be like, that's not a violence, that's not a violence. But, you know, I've, I, I've completely come around on that. I guess I just don't think that there's language strong enough um, besides maybe saying violence a little, I don't even think that's strong enough. When we think about erasure of civilizations and, you know, um, entire cultures that are lost or, or, you know, colonization and stuff like that, where we're never going to hear voices from people. We're never going to hear this or that. And, you know, that, so I can understand words as a violence or words as a beginning of uh, violence in an erasure, you know, when you change somebody's language, when you mm -hmm. put a label on somebody that they don't appreciate or that, that just doesn't occur to them. And it's hard for me, I, I mean, I'm old fashioned, like I was born in 81. I, it's hard for me to make my brain make adjustments every day to be more inclusive, um, especially because I used to say, well, I was in an environment all day where didn't matter the skin color of the person in front of you. They all believe the same thing. So you just punch them in the face and that's the language you use. And in a sense, it's true. But so many people, I think there was so much racism and so much racism I wasn't aware of and a racism that I was per perpetrating or sexism or, you know, um, assaults on uh, people's sense of self that I didn't know because it was kind of this internalized misogyny or whatever it was that I was carrying with me. Um, or the that I was in. And so that to me, I feel like I feel like I have a lot of making up to do to people. And I feel like in MMA that culture is very rampant and I that's where I need to work. And so that's one of the reasons I want to write within the fighting community. And I think there are tremendously wonderful people here um, in, in MMA. I think there's way more good than there is bad. I think bad people get the spotlight because, you know, squeaky wheel gets the what does the squeaky wheel get? I forgot. Grease. Grease, right, yeah. <laughs> the truth matters, I mean, there, there's just this kind of entrenched system, and I, I don't know how much harm I was doing to people when I was saying things that I didn't even know were racist or, or sexist mm -hmm. or 
or, you know, um, uh, uh, yeah, anti-transgender. I, I didn't even know. And ignorance is not an excuse. Mm-hmm. You think making up for ignorance is a task when you're aware of it. So I'm yeah. I can relate to this so, so hard. I actually wanted to talk to you about this because you brought up internalized misogyny. Um, this is something that I dealt with. And I talked to Leslie Smith about that when uh, she was on the show, because I think that uh, one thing I learned is sort of like to forgive myself a little bit, because I totally agree with you. Ignor- ignorance is not an excuse, but we're all like brought up in these systems as well. Right. Like with everyone else, we hear the same messages. So it takes some deconstructing. And uh, I'm also very embarrassed by a lot of the things that I said and thought before this started taking place. Uh, and mm-hmm. I remember I was reading up on, on some things that you, uh, on an interview that you did, and you brought up this quote that you have that is actually on IMDb, right? Um, mm-hmm. The About feminism. Like, I'm not a feminist to the extent that men are in men or something like that. And you yeah. have since, like, talked about how that's not, that you might, you probably said this, but that's not what you believe anymore. Um, yeah. I am fortunate enough to not be famous. So I do not have an IMDb page. But so they, my, my shit is not eternalized. But my question for you on that, uh, as somebody who can absolutely relate to that growth process to just coming to terms with certain things and having this need to sort of make up for it. Like when, uh, when do you feel in terms of just the, the, the sexism and stuff specifically, uh, was it when you started the program? Like when did you start really, uh, waking up to these things? Um, Well, it was definitely, I think, going to graduate school and thinking, oh, I'm very liberal and I vote this and I vote that. And uh, first of all, I don't think I'm liberal. I think I'm progressive. And I had to learn kind of a distinction there, but also just being called a fascist by some of my classmates. What the fuck are you talking about? I'm not a fascist. And then I just, I, I was really defensive about a lot of things. And then I started listening to them. And these are, you know, mostly kids a decade younger than me. And um, like, first of all, I don't think I've ever been a fascist, but I think that I've ascribed to rule sets and stuff like that, that um, had, I guess, systematic racism in place already. These things, you know, that was just like what I was used to. And so, you know, if the people around me dismissed it as not being really racist or not being really sexist. It's just ironic, you know, ironic sexism, ironic racism. Then, you know, it's not real. But the fact that it is real and and it is an extremely painful growth process because I felt defensive constantly, right? I felt like I was always, you know, trying to just angry and just like, they're all wrong. Nah, nah, nah. I'm good. I love people. I'm not racist. And I'm thinking about, you know, you take seeing the maybe, I don't know, proud boys and the that whole fucking movement of jackasses saying, we're not racist. And like, oh, you are. And if you don't think you are, then I need to do some serious looking at my own life and my own writing and, and the things that, you know, the things that I've said. And I don't actually, like, this is a thing that also is very painful. I, I would always like to apologize for hurting people and, and you know, making people hurt by things that I've said and by, you know, if I've issued any violence in my actions, in my words, that is not MMA violence that was delivered in a cage. But the thing is, like, people don't actually have to forgive you for that. And that's something you have to sit with too. Like nobody mm-hmm. owes forgiveness. It's not an owed thing. That's And so, you know, we can't demand that of people we've hurt. It's just like, I can totally relate to all those things that you're saying. Like I, 
I had very similar experiences and I deal with a lot of the similar guilt, uh, even though like it, it took a lot of just seeing it on my own, I guess, uh, other than having a bunch of brats tell me I was a fascist, but, um, mm -hmm. Okay, <laughs> it's your own process. But uh, one thing you you've talked about this in the past a little bit, uh, but I wanted to go a little bit further on that on just how it started for you with the writing. I know you had a major in English, but um, why did you make the decision to to join the program and, and, and get back into writing? Well, um, I you know, I did know I wanted to write, but I wasn't quite sure how to go about it or, or when that would happen for me. And uh, when, you know, I did some writing, like I wrote for Fightland for a little bit when it was still around. Um, and that the, I guess the SI piece was the one that really got me into the program. Um, the one about, you know, my retirement, but mm -hmm. I was really depressed when I uh, left MMA and I moved to Kansas and I was working full time for Invicta and it was a good job. I don't know that, I was suited for matchmaking in the sense that I just organizational skills, my, my, my methods of doing things are strange <laughs> and, you know, and it's just like, and I cared so much about each fighter um, to the point that it was like, it was consuming me. I wasn't sleeping very well, but I, I think there was a lot of projection in my own fight career going on in there too. Like wanting to make sure everybody was taken care of and this is that. And that's how you're supposed to be as a matchmaker, but you're also supposed to fall asleep at night. Um, mm -hmm. So I was, I was drinking way too much and you know I am um, I was emailing back and forth with uh, a mutual friend of ours <laughs> and um, and he said give maybe you should try you know joining a writing group or something and so uh, I kind of went online one night I think it was like a New Year's day or, or the night before New Year's and I saw one that was going on in Kansas City and I joined it and you know it was like this kind of workshop that you paid I don't know, 30 bucks to join. And it was wonderful. They called themselves the Kansas City Writers Salon. And I was one of the youngest ones in there. So it was like I was hearing kind of the experiences of people who already published, who were working on stop. And I just felt, I felt really good. And so I started writing pieces for them. And um, my friend or somebody, the editor of Sports Illustrated had gone to the same high school as me. And he had come to Albuquerque to the gym to shoot some sort of special or something. We realized that we had the same favorite English teacher. So we laughed about that. Um, and so we kept in touch about that. And he, he maybe said, oh, I heard you retired. Are you interested in writing about it? You know, we do the spiders kind of blog thing. And I was like, sure. So I sent in the piece that I'd written for this group and he thought it was great. And he said, we're totally publishing this. And, you know, um, you know, here's the editorial stuff. Here's the person you're going to be talking to. And she was great. And when it was up online, I was just really, really proud. And then I was like, well, my sister put a lot of pressure on me to go to graduate school. Um, you know, she, we're a family of higher education. <laughs> um, not exactly in the elitist sense because uh, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we just like are kind of more like we don't know what to do with ourselves, so we go to school. And um, so she has like a double PhD, my sister does, um, and she runs uh, KU's ancient DNA lab. And she was, and I was living with her at the time because I really was struggling with debt. And having and just struggling with depression, you know, I had a lot of anxiety, depression issues that I um, really took a toll on me, like physically and mentally. And so she 
said, go to graduate school, go to graduate school. So I took the GRE and I bombed, like bombed, bombed. And I was studying, she says I didn't study hard enough. But I mean, I got like a 9% on the math. Like the English, that was fine. But I, it was just like, oh my God, I, I can't do this. I can't make it into graduate school. She said, well, practice applying to places that don't take the GRE. Well, the two places that really don't take the GRE are Columbia and University of Iowa. And those happen to be the two top schools. They don't give a shit about your math scores. They give a shit about if you can write or not. Their MFA programs. And so I applied, not thinking it was going to happen. And I ended up getting into both. So I used that piece, that Sports Illustrated piece. Um, and I got in and I went to go visit Iowa. And I realized that although Columbia was kind of a dream, like that idea of living in New York and all these other things, I had a very big old dog, two cats, and a lot of debt. And probably New York City was not going to be a place for me. And Iowa City reminded me in many ways of the town that I grew up in, Bloomington, Indiana. And so I was like, I think I could be really happy here. Um, I'm going to join here. And that's where I learned I was a fascist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Long story short, I was a fascist. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the program, it's, it's an incredible program. Like, I mean, every moment of it, you know, I whine and complain about how hard this is, how hard it is, but the privileged, like, I mean, the, the people I got to meet, the authors I got to meet, and just the writers, the mentors that I had, Carrie Howley, um, was my thesis advisor and she wrote an MMA book called Throne, um, which I don't know if a lot of people in the MMA community have read it or not, but it, I've never heard of it. Oh, I'll send you a copy. Um, send me your address after this and I'll send it to you. But um, it's interesting in the fact that it's playing with, I mean, it's more of the literary experimentation that's going on. It talks about MMA. There's a lot going on in MMA when it comes to it. You know, it's really in depth, but it's also like, there's really cool things going on with character development and what she's doing to herself as narrator. Like she actually made herself a character because you, you know her and then you know Kit, the main character in this movie. You guys are nothing alike. Like not, this is not, this is not the person I know. Carrie's like Joan Didion. Like this Kit in, in, in this is just like, she's just odd. And like, I, I don't I mean, Joan Didion is odd in her, but anyway, I am digressing. So <laughs> I got to work with her. I got her mentorship. Um, she's right now actually carry writing a book about reality winner. Um, the woman who yeah. the Russian. Yeah. The whistleblower. Yeah. Yeah. The whistleblower. So she's pretty in, in deep with um, a lot of really interesting projects. Um, so she's, she's fucking awesome. I think. Um, yeah. So I got to work with somebody like that. I got to work with Inara Vuzimix who does like beautiful history things and, and, human interests. I don't know. It's just it, the women in this program were incredible. Some of the men were too. Um, but it's just like seeing female writers kind of have so much command over the sentence and their careers was really, really exciting to me. I kind of want to be on that level. Yeah. So. This, um, when you mentioned that, I, I found it interesting because like you went straight from your career to matchmaking. So I can only imagine with that kind of like a little fresh in your head, how that could have mm-hmm. messed with you a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you, you talk openly about um, your struggles with, with anxiety and, and depression. Mm-hmm. My question on that sense is just kind of like, uh, was that something that was a lifelong thing or did it, you know, happen or did it become worse uh, in light of your retirement from MMA? Um, I, it was definitely a lifelong thing. Like I can remember 
being a child and being like just insanely anxious about this, that, or the other thing. And in college, mm-hmm. like just doing insanely impulsive things to kind of quell that anxiety. Like, oh, it, but for me, it was like, I think one of the reasons I started fighting was because I'm, I am scared of everything. I'm scared of everything. I'm scared of walking out of people judging me. I'm scared of heights. I'm scared of driving. I'm scared of everything. And so the idea of forcing myself into a cage to fight, forcing myself into this environment where people are staring at me or they're insulting me and they're mocking me because I'm a woman, all of that stuff, like just really forcing myself over that burden, I thought was the only way I could really kind of get a handle on all of the fear and all of the anxiety. And it worked well for a while. But it you know, ebbs and flows. That guy was also using bulimia as a as a method of um, of you know self medication, and that doesn't always have the best effect on you. Um, so there's no doctor, but yes, um, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's a real story. Yeah, it turns out, yeah, <laughs> turns out my teeth are in pretty bad shape now. But um, the, the thing is, um, I don't know when I when I when I was fighting, there was a focus for things, and as much mm-hmm. as fighting is. Um, well, as many of the difficulties that I faced, it's nowhere near the difficulties other people faced. I, I was insanely privileged, especially the last, you know, the last years of my career. But the, I, it, it did create a bubble for me. There was a, whether it was or not, there was kind of a safety that it doesn't really matter what's going on in the outside world with the taxes and this and that. I have a fight in front of me. I have a fight. And I needed that hyper focus. I needed that. I needed that whoever the mysterious opponent is that I'm fighting next. And I needed something in front of me in order to get through day by day. And so without that, it was hard, really hard. And Shannon is one of the best bosses ever, but it it was just, it was just like, I couldn't adjusting my brain from what I was doing. It just didn't, I don't know that I I had the brain to make the proper adjustments. Now I do think Mm -hmm. I put together some good fights, although I don't really want to take credit for that because it was always a matchmaking team. There was always, you know, influence and there was always say going on, uh, you know, uh, her, you know, her approval and then, you know, other things going on with that. Um, I think I got a lot of shit for things, but you know, like that's your job. In, in one of the things I had to learn is to keep my mouth closed and not defend myself with, well, actually that's not what happened and just be like, fine, whatever shit on me that, you know, that, I, you know, I think about it. that's why like, I know people are very hard on Joe Silva and Sean Shelby, um, McMaynard and stuff, but the, the, it's the amount of shit those guys take, you know, for the decisions that they're making for the, it's about the entire card, not just about one person at a time. And so you care about every single person, but you have to care about the card. And that's just, it's a different kind of mentality. Um, so, I think I could have gotten much better at it too. Like I also was like really wanting to put on the best fights ever. And sometimes that happened and sometimes it didn't. But um, when I got accepted into graduate, when I started writing, you know, I started a little bit of the anxiety was definitely built up there and I didn't have an opponent. There was always a fight card after a fight card, this and that. My real love was the analysis. I wanted to break down the fights. I wanted to talk about how incredible these athletes were all the time. And so when, an opportunity to go to graduate school came up, you know, I was writing and the writing made me a little bit happier. And then the chance to go and really learn how to write for a living came up, you know, uh, I went, of course, with Shannon's blessing. And then for the first year, maybe first semester of the first year, I was co-matchmaking with Caitlin Young. And then 
I was at a show and I realized I put none of the matches together, put in no input because I was way too busy with school. So I was like, I have to, I have to bow out of the matchmaking team. I was just like, I'm not helping and I shouldn't be getting a paycheck for this. Like, it's not right. So, I mean, (laughs) I love getting a paycheck, but it's just like, (laughs) but I, you know, that's not what I should be doing. Like I should, like, I'm, I, it's not right to do that. So, um, you know, I bowed out. Um, and of course she kept me on for commentary, which I will always forever love her for because the commentary is, I mean, that's when I get to tell the world how great fighting is. I love doing that. I I love doing that, especially with female fighters. Like Mm -hmm. I wanted to be UFC champion when I started out, even though nobody saw a path to that back in in shoot days for a woman, nobody saw that, that I wanted to do so many other things, but I also wanted, I just thought they were such extraordinary women. And I just wanted people to recognize that. And it's, like a weird if it sounds cheesy it's just a weird way that i get to say that like once every couple of months i get to remind people so no i can absolutely and i it's i relate to so much of this um in my own life in different ways obviously i was never a cage fighter uh though i do have a mean head kick i gotta say i have (laughs) i just (laughs) have the personality of a fighter but one thing that you touched on that uh, i always wanted to ask um retired fighters in general but i think that you have some type of unique side on that um the focus because one thing that i notice that i do with my work is exactly what you said like i i create a bubble like if i have a deadline or something like i use it as an excuse to just ignore everything else like you said taxes real life relationships like uh Mm -hmm. those really complicated stuff like I, i i just leave it out and i'm like okay i'm not worried about that i need to focus on my deadlines and in a way it's like a cop-out i think because it's kind of like it's comfortable right you just have to focus on that i have to get through Mm -hmm. this and then you just find other deadlines and then uh you look you peek outside and you're like oh this is a mess i cannot deal with that i'll just go back to the deadline and then once that's taken away it brings like a lot of hard questions right about your life when you just spend so much time um looking away from it uh, so how was that part of it for you? Um, just kind of like breathing and being like, okay, so I don't have a camp and I'll have all these other things around me that I have to actually take care of. Well, I went from one bubble to another because right, I went into graduate school right after, like I lived in the quote unquote real world for like maybe two mm-hmm. years before I went into graduate school, which is its own bubble. So I'm on the other end of that now. Like I, mm-hmm. my fellowship here at the university ends and I have, no job after that you know i'm looking around for jobs and i'm like i could teach at a university although it's going to be hard to do because i'm a little late in the application process um but i don't know that that's what i want to do i could bag groceries and continue on my book you know what i mean but you know, that won't yeah. make enough money one bagging grocery you know so it's just like i mean i don't mind me labor labor yeah. i actually you know but i it's something that my family would be pretty pissed about. They're like, how much money have you spent on your education? And you're doing something that, you know, you could have been doing without spending all this money on your education. But I I don't know, like, I want to get this book done very badly, Mm -hmm. but it seems farther and farther away some days because of the day-to-day grind. Um, And so I guess I I don't know that it's a cop-out to hyper-focus. I do think it's just a methodology. I do think Mm -hmm. we have to deal with everything that's around us, but it's we there's so much stimulation there's so many things going on and keeping up with day-to-day life is it's it's hell you know mm-hmm. kind of I, I you know you have to focus on what's exactly in front of you and so getting through that um 
I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, the book is about MMA, right? Yeah, it's about my experiences. It's about MMA. Um, I don't know what uh, it's uh, so far. It's just a collection of essays. Um, mm -hmm. I would like it to be everybody on my thesis committee said, no, this needs to be a single narrative. So that's where I'm trying to find the right way in. I would rather have a collection of essays. I'm, I, I consider myself an essayist. Um, so, but it could be just kind of one long essay in a sense. Um, um, I'm still trying to find a way in though. You know, the things that I thought were very important at the time of writing it are not necessarily as important now um, or not as, as, I don't know. They're just not as prescient. They're not like, they're not weighing on my mind now. So it, it has to undergo some evolutions, I think, before it's going to be a complete project. And there's a lot I want to say. And yeah. I, you know, it's just like, what do you get to say? What do you have the right to say? Who, you know, who do you get the right to talk about? I can absolutely imagine that like uh, writing a book seems like my worst nightmare. <laughs> That's something yeah. that I've actually thought about. Like if I were to write a book about my life, obviously it's going to involve other people and you're kind of like, yeah. okay, <laughs> where mm -hmm. can I, how can I navigate this? So I can absolutely see. Um, is it painful for you to like revisit some memories? Oh yeah, completely. Horrifically painful <laughs> because things are not, what you're thinking and feeling at one time when you look back, you're like, holy shit. Like you can just see levels of how you, oh, the bubble and how you know, there's just so many levels of truth. There's so many levels of what is actually going on as opposed to what you think is going on. Like that whole Joan Didion, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Like that entire quote doesn't stop there. It's about how we, we assign a narrative line to what we're doing in order to survive. And like, um, we're in, and we shut things out. We shut out our own uh, sins more or less, you know, in order to succeed. And we also shut down the sins of others. And I think sins is a hard word, but I'm trying to, I don't know if flaws is a strong enough word, but we completely tailor our experiences and we edit them in our minds. And so whatever book I'm going to put out there and talk about, there's going to be people saying, that's not how it was. She's lying. She's mm -hmm. making not how it was that's not true and the truth of the matter is it was true for me that for was you. that's what I was going through that's that's what I was undertaking you know and some of these years were incredible like some of it was just it was just beautiful beautiful experiences hopefully I can get the funny parts in there you know like the shitting in Putin's palace and stuff but <laughs> You know, like that. That's the best MMA story yeah. in the history of the world. I it gotta say, I'll never, it's embarrassing now in this day and age to have pictures of me smiling with my arm around Putin and Berlusconi. But you know, at least I can say it was shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was really shit right there. Like, but yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like you, you had these experiences, and I mean, it was a different time, and you have images of them. Uh, because you were already in the public eye, which a lot of people, like, we all, I don't know, like, perspective changes everything. And over the years, we learn, like, it's yeah. not amazing. I can see why. That's the thing. I put myself in your place and I'm like, I can see why I would feel the same way. But 
<laughs> you know, kind of like, I can see why, because I would have a problem with having touched Putin in any yes. circumstance. <laughs> but looking from the outside, I can say like, so you wouldn't go like, you know, like, yeah. uh, it is still the best story. And for the listeners who don't know the story, first off, what the fuck are you doing? Second, <laughs> Julie told it in the Joe Rogan experience. So really a downgrade for her coming to my podcast. And you can listen to it. Oh, I don't know. I think you guys both appeal to to several different le- levels of uh, of viewers and listeners. And I, think, I wouldn't say we that. have very different <laughs> different audiences, as you could say. Because um, <laughs> aren't going to be sending me, you know, rape threats. So that's a, you know. But I, I have to say, you know, one thing that came out of the Joe Rogan experience uh, was that I really like him. I really, I don't mm-hmm. agree with everything he says, but I think he's a good man. Um, I, I don't agree with many things he says, actually, but I think he's a very good man. I really don't like some of his followers. Mm-hmm. And they talk to women. But you could say the same thing about Bernie Sanders. I don't like some of his followers and how they talk to women either. But I really like Bernie Sanders and what he stands for. So that's, you know, that's it. life is not easy. There are complexities everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think and that's the thing with Joe Rogan. Like, I can absolutely acknowledge uh, how successful he is. And, you know, like, you can't really take away from what he does. Uh, but, I mean, giving platform to just like, which is now a huge platform to some uh, problematic people and just mm-hmm. downright shitbags like Alex Jones. Yeah. Um, you know, just so, so like... And that's the thing, like the audience, because on the one hand, I'm always kind of like, okay, you can't really be responsible for how people will get your message all the time or for the people who are getting your message, especially when you have such a big platform like Joe. But at the same time, I'm kind of like, he should take more responsibility for some things. So I go back and forth. But in general, like there is a type that is the Joe Rogan fan. (laughs) And it's it's not usually a type that... um... I have the same social and political viewpoints as. Mm-hmm. But you got like, they, they like came after you? Oh, yeah. I think they come after every female guest. Maybe they do male guests too. But, um, oh, yeah, there was there were threats. There was all this other stuff. But the thing is, like, it's, well, it became very funny, which it, that and again, that's an issue of privilege there. It is not mm-hmm. a funny be threatened as a woman it's a frightening thing and women deal with it every day and i have been a victim of sexual assault in the past and so it's also a privilege in a sense that i can laugh now and think that these that some of these things were very funny and very stupid that people were saying about me um but you know not everybody gets to do that not everybody's mindset is is that way and so um i don't know like that's just that's just where I was able to adjust and other people may not, you know, especially women who, who get attacked by speaking. <laughs> you know, like, God forbid you speak. God forbid you have an opinion and somebody puts it out there. But, you know, I, I was lucky. And, and, but if I am lucky in that sense that I have a voice that if people agree with it or they don't agree with it, I don't have a problem putting it out there then I do think I have a responsibility to get this book done and, and to speak when I'm asked to go on recordings and stuff. And I know that sounds very uh, arrogant, but fuck it. Yeah, I'm arrogant. That's so, that's the thing to me. Like, that's so interesting uh, because the language that you're speaking in, and that's the one that I use too, like, it feels like we're always, like, navigating these 
um, ifs and this kind of like, even when you're talking about your book, like being so careful about how to frame your own experience in the world. Mm -hmm. And even just like, we have to really acknowledge our privilege all the time. I do the same thing when I'm like, no, I left it off, but you know, I know a lot of people don't. And just kind of like, uh, I, like, so I see that a lot in women. <laughs> I see that as such a big part of the female experience. Like, even when you're putting out a book about your own experiences, you're having all this responsibility, which I think is great because we all need responsibilities with our platforms, however big they are. Your platform is a lot bigger than mine, but still I feel the same way. If somebody asked me to be on a podcast, I kind of feel like I, I, I have to go because, you know, it is something. Uh, but... Mm -hmm. Don't you think that this is something that is like if a guy goes and like, you know, obviously every I'm doing the same thing, like <laughs> adding the disclaimers. But, yeah. you know, we all have our insecurities. But like if a man is usually more confident to share his experiences. And I feel mm -hmm. like don't you feel like with women we're sort of like more taught to be more careful and to really question our own sort of like perspective in these situations? Yeah, of course we are. I mean, uh, because whether it's intentional in our upbringing or it's not, we're always thinking about the people around us, right? Like, and men are usually thinking about themselves first. And I know, let's go hashtag, not all men. Yeah, not all men. But the majority of the time um, we're faced with, with these kinds of things. Like if we have a voice, if we say something, uh, then we have to deal with the fact that it's almost inevitably sexualized, critiqued for being a female voice like oh that's an annoying that voice is too high or she doesn't know what she's talking about or you know it's like like in my oh man in my uh commentary uh if you notice like uh, just one of the biggest critiques is julie giggles all the time she giggles you don't uh, i do laugh and that's something you know i work on i work on not laughing during things but i'm enjoying myself a lot um my job is it's analysis, but it's also to make people excited about the fights, you know, and that's, that's how I show excitement. But you, you don't hear them say Paul Felder was giggling. They might say, mm -hmm. laugh. they might, you know, something like that. They might say Joe laughed about this, not giggle. It's so derivative. It's such a little thing. And so like, again, that, that was just one of these things I, I, I did notice as being a woman in this and just hearing, oh, she giggles. Um, she does this. It's like, you know, all right. You're not stopping. <laughs> There's such a double standard with that, though. Like, when you think of a guy, and to me, the main example of that is Bisping uh, in commentary. I particularly really like his commentary because it's organic. He's not, like, cookie cutter. He, like, goes off the cuff. He says some outlandish shit sometimes. So it's kind of like he makes it interesting because he's allowed to be himself and to mm -hmm. be spontaneous. And it sounds great, but then when you're a woman, you're not really given that same luxury are you like if you do things like you said the giggling this is fun it means you're enjoying the experience and you're there but like if you're a woman i feel like there's a much bigger expectation uh of perfection really yeah i you're totally right and the thing is like i mean shannon of course she gives me free reign to do things as myself so it's really the people on the outside it's their expectations when they're watching and it's like I could let that get to me. And of course it's affecting me or I wouldn't mention it, but it's also one of those things. It's like, okay, motherfuckers, I'm going to stay more myself. I can change for you. But the truth of the matter is I am delivering the information. I am telling you what's going on. And if you like it, you like it. If you don't like it, you don't like it, but that doesn't stop me from doing the job to the best of my ability. 
you know, and how I do it stylistically. Yeah. Do you feel like it fucks with you sometimes though? And I talked a little bit with Laura Senko about that because it does with me. Like, um, just the hearing that you have to be perfect kind of like makes you feel like you have to be perfect. And I've struggled with that my entire life. Like perfectionism is a major problem. And I say it's a problem, not as a humble brag. Oh my God, I need to do everything amazing because it's just bad. Like if nothing's ever going to be perfect. So if you're always expecting to do things perfectly, you're never going to do anything and you're never going to give yourself the chance to become good at things. Right. So do you feel like that? gets in your way sometimes or or has gotten in your way in your life of just like making shit happen just because we're so expected to make it perfect yeah I, I think you're totally right it has gotten in my way I don't think that it gets in my way um with fight shows as much now like I in the beginning mm-hmm. definitely definitely big deal you know now I I kind of get like you know I get pretty I wouldn't say depressed but I'm, I'm pretty down after a fight show if I see a lot of critiques but it's like I've got shit to do I've got fights to care about I'm still teaching MMA so whatever you know these people are saying it's going to be a hindrance to tomorrow if I carry it with me then so if I am sad and, and TJ can attest to this because I've cried after shows before if I am sad um about the way something went about that's not it's just like game on motherfuckers i'm still working harder for the next one so yeah it's awesome that is very like enlightened spirit of you the therapy's <laughs> paying off julie <Yay>! <laughs> i aspire to get to that level someday <laughs> you're my icon <laughs> we have a really good one coming up and you know what's interesting about that is that kind of game on motherfucker thing is um, Jin Yu Fry and Ashley Cummins are fighting on this next one, and both of them have struggled with significant like losses in their careers. And so I find that like that kind of game on motherfuckers thing, it's displayed for me in the cage when people are fighting, right? Like I have examples of it right in front of me. Who am I? I'm just the voice in the background. These are the ones doing the work at the time. And so um, it is always inspirational, like uh, being at these shows and and being involved them to the extent that I am because I get to kind of I don't know it's drawing from a well a little bit and it you know the night of the show maybe I get a little down but after the um you know when I think about it the next day when I'm reviewing things I'm just like wow they were amazing this was fucking great like look at what they did look who came from behind and and made their career like this or made this night the way it was like this I mean that's where MMA holds the key to so many things, right? It's there's always a path for if it's not necessarily redemption, there's always a path for each person to start over the next day. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I love it so much. Mm-hmm. That, uh, yeah, I can totally, I totally agree with you. I just, this, and that's something coming from somebody who has never fought. So you have even an extra layer of that. But just like I wrote a profile on Ashley Cummins, just kind of mm-hmm. plug it in real quick. It's up there yeah, at the Athletic, yeah. if you want. Yeah. Um, and I talked, and that that's the thing. Like she talked about almost giving up twice because, you know, she couldn't see out of both eyes after a fight in which she got really injured with uh, Joanne Calderwood. And then, you know, just losing four in a row and just being like, okay, like I wanted to be a world champion and I lost four in a row. And she still came back and she's like, I don't know if that's dumb or smart of me when I came back. And this is amazing. Uh, but what I wanted to, to, since we're getting closer to the end here, since producer Chris will kill us, um, <laughs> 
once there was when I was first starting out the podcast, I asked people to send me suggestions or questions. And um, you asked me to touch on whether you I felt like the MMA community was ready for like more plural narratives, mm-hmm. kind of like in a sense that, you know, the way you, you phrase it, it seemed like it was kind of like we have these like very accessible and, and just kind of like easy beefs and just like the very easy rivalries and just that like and kind of like maybe we, we weren't really as accepting of the richness and the other types of of more maybe nuanced narratives that I feel like places like Invicta do such a good job at highlighting right those mm-hmm. stories um so yeah my question for you just like reading the MMA you know news I now get really bored. I used to get bored even when I was doing the day-to-day, but I get more bored now. Um, just looking around the MMA landscape, like sometimes it's kind of like, oh, I don't even want to deal with this today. Like this mm-hmm. is exhausting. It feels like the same way. So I, it, how do you feel about it? Like, do you, are you happy with the type of content that we're putting out right now? Or do you feel like there's still such, the, there's a gap in, in the way that we explore these things? Well, I mean, this is a sucky epi thing to say, but I don't care, but the athletic always manages to give um, layered perspectives on things. And for that, I appreciate like you guys like more than I can say. Um, I think there's kind of this, uh, it seems to be maybe a trend or a couple of of reporters have started personal sort of blogs instead of, or or, or newsletters and stuff where they're really kind of spilling, you know, what they're feeling and, and what they're saying because they know that the official story is not what people are, you know, it's just not what people are drawn to. It's not what producers or uh, promoters and stuff are going to like. And I appreciate that too, although I'm broke, so I can't really subscribe to all of them. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I went to the UFC headquarters, uh, the, the Inst- Performance Institute for the first time this year. And um, a friend of mine took me along and people work so hard there. Like the company, mm-hmm. there are people within that building, writers and, and content editors and stuff like that, and they're working their asses off. And so it feels hard to level a criticism that like, this is not, this is not nuanced enough. You're not doing enough. But I think the truth of the matter is um, we could all be better. Right. And, and I think the narratives that get, uh, that get the most attention are the ones that usually are involved in insulting people and this rivalry and that rivalry. And I think, I don't know. I think people try to do things for money. I'm not talking about the writers now. I'm talking about, you know, the fighters. The fighters are, they'll change themselves. They'll say things. They'll try to be outrageous for money. And that's a trend that has worked very well. But given the consequences of MMA, I don't know that that's something that can pan out for every single fighter. So it is eventually up to a fighter to know their own narrative and to and to promote their own narrative, but not necessarily to promote themselves. I think a promoter's job is to promote them. I think promoter de- needs to do the PR work. They need to be highlighting the good things about a fighter. But what a fighter can do um, is understand themselves and understand what makes them interesting and really be a little bit more introspective. And when we get bored talking about this is the best camp ever and stuff like that, that's, that's subterfuge. So the you know the opponents don't get any. Um, intel on you then find something else to talk about you know talk about i don't know talk about some charity work that you're really working on talk about and, and some fighters have done that very well um i don't mean to be downplaying them but you know talk about how you just really love reading sci-fi books where you play these video games and this is why these video games are a metaphor for things you know what i mean like 
fighters can make mm-hmm. their own narratives interesting without being racist jackasses. Uh, that was that's something that uh you touched on that i agree when i talk about how like quote-unquote boring it gets um and that's the thing like everyone i know in media like okay 99 percent of people i guess it's not that they're lazy or that they're doing things because they are uninspired and uninspiring people it's because like that's kind of like how the wheels churn i guess so yeah. uh you have these like very competent and intelligent professionals and the fighters themselves have these like you said often have these amazing stories and you know sometimes there just really isn't that much space for them to sell themselves and there's the click thing and there's what the audience wants and there's always that like sort of tug of war right no but the media does this because that's what people read and then they're like no no the people read that because that's what the media does and you're kind of mm-hmm. like always in this conversation where everybody seems awful and i'm kind of like I guess an optimist in the sense that I don't feel like most people are, I feel like those people aren't awful. I feel like there's a system that kind of discourages some narratives, right? Yeah. I believe in MMA fighters and I actually believe in the media. I believe in journalists. Like I think they're trying to tell the story and whether or not that has to get edited for, you know, clickbait titles and stuff like that. Uh, there's still a way you might have to work just that much harder to to give impact on the human side of things, to give the human side of things like more of a, I don't know, punch it up more. I, I don't know exactly. You're talking about somebody yeah. who has published since like 2017. So that's not, not the best person to maybe ask. But, yeah. No, I can see that. Uh, my, my, my last question uh, to wrap this up, uh, more on a more positive note, you could say like, uh, on the other hand, I do feel like, um, you know, you talk a lot about mental health. I like to talk about mental mental health. I like to have guests who talk about mental health, and I do feel like um, that's a criminally like under discussed aspect of the fight game because obviously it's such a high stakes sport. Of course, people have very complex emotions and, and problems dealing with them. And I do feel like we're getting better at that. Like mm-hmm. we're having better conversations and that uh, we're giving, we're allowing people to be more open about these things. And uh, on, I don't know, in general, like I am a little um, optimistic looking at how we're going uh, with that. Like, mm-hmm. uh, so my last question for you is really, how do you feel about that? Are you optimistic as well? I'm very optimistic. I think some people have set incredible examples uh, of being uh, vulnerable. They, you know, they've allowed themselves to be vulnerable and it may have, you know, caused other fighters or media or whatever it is, you know, I shouldn't say media, it's just the fans to mock them or whatever. Um, But at the same time, that vulnerability, you know, I think about Rose Nami Yunus and and people like that that have been open about problems they've struggled with. That really allows, you know, we talk about representation. We talk about, you know, if you see more female fighters, more female fighters will emerge because women think they can do it then. Um, And, or if you see, you know, any any sort of representation that's not just the white male fighter doing something, which mm-hmm. guys, I'm not bashing you. You just kind of have had spotlight <laughs> the entire time. Um, but yeah, mental. I think if, if there's going to be somebody who's struggling with mental health problems and they see somebody's story up there, and I'm just using her as an example because I don't think that my talking about mental health has had quite the impact that the UFC champions have. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, like. Um, seeing that you know makes somebody realize that there could be a venue for the issues that mm-hmm. they, they they there is a way that they can put their mind or they can they can address you know some of their problems or seeing you know when 
fighters say they go to sports psychologists. Like, wow, maybe I should go see a sports psychologist. Maybe I should just go see a psychologist. Maybe I should, you know, try and figure out what's going on. And it's so helpful. I mean, it's a psychologist. It's not about being crazy. It's about going to somebody asking, you know, you go to a doctor when you break your leg. It's not like you're breaking your head. It's you're going to, to somebody who's trained to see the patterns in a way that you're not trained to see. And they're like, okay, well, you make this adjustment or you have to, you have to stop thinking this way. And here, here's how you can try to help yourself. I mean, it's just, it's another way of fixing and making ourselves better. I think everybody wants to feel and be better. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. That's, I think, a great note to end on. Um, a note of hope, you could say, which is rare on this podcast. So <laughs> take that, guys. Take that and run with it. This is not going to happen often. Uh, I just want to, I guess, thank you so much, Yuli, for making the time for being here. Uh, do you want to plug anything? I know you're going to do commentary for uh, Invicta. 39. Invicta 39 is this Friday on um, on UFC Fight Pass. Oh, or if you're there, it's in Kansas City at Memorial mm -hmm. uh, Kansas City, Kansas, not the actual Kansas City, Kansas, not the one that Donald Trump imagined um, uh, at Memorial Stadium. And um, also there's, um, yeah, it's, it's a great card. There's a really interesting title eliminator fight. There's an actual title fight. It, it's bomb. This card is, is really great. And, you know, follow my Twitter, buy my book if you when it comes out and argue with me about it. Thank you. I do not have a book. You already know my Twitter. Uh, I will probably not have a book for the next 10 years, but when it does come out, I hope you get it. And that is it for this week. I hope you are back. You're back again uh, next Wednesday for more MMA and other stuff. <laughs>